reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to span to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thank you. Rick, thank you. Deniker, thank you for those kind words. Good morning, everyone. I'm excited for our time this morning as we look at Jesus's words and I pray and I hope that it will be soul nourishing. So imagine with me uh, a large group of people, maybe much like this room. Uh, it's maybe even more people than, in that, than that is in this room. A large group of people and in this large group of people, this large crowd, there's a young woman who is anxious and uh, considering for her child. Or consider with me um, an older widow. Or in this also this large crowd, there is a friend who is concerned about the health of another friend. There's fathers trying to care for their children and provide for them. This is the audience that Jesus is speaking to. He is well acquainted with their burdens and where they are in life. Much like all the different situations that are in this room right now. And I hope that this morning we are able to listen to the words and the reasoning that Jesus has to say to us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. And how we're going to break up the passage is we're actually going to look at four different reasons that God gives us to fight the, the intense battle in our minds and hearts in the moment of anxiety. These are reasons or logic or vivid pictures to help us in this fight. Also, isn't God so kind? He could have, he, he is like the creator of the universe, he could have simply just said, don't be anxious and left it there. But instead, he says, don't be anxious and here. Let me provide you reasons why you should not be so. And my hope is that these reasons are medicine, antibiotics for, antibiotics for our souls. 
So we are in Matthew chapter 6. Um, it's probably important for us to know this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon taught or um, preached by Jesus Christ. And um, in that sermon, what Jesus is doing is he is letting his followers know this is how you are to think, this is how you are to act, this is how I want you to be. And in so doing, you will be different than the world around you. And specifically here, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing anxiety. Anxiety is the uneasiness and discomfort within us that is caused in the anticipation of something fearful. It is the uneasiness and discomfort that is caused within us that is caused in the anticipation of something fearful. Now, before we dive in and start looking at these reasons, I think there's one thing that will be helpful for us. It's important for us to know what exactly is Jesus prohibiting? God is not calling us to a life of carelessness, of just like, well, all right, I just don't have to care anymore. No, where we just stop caring for all things. No, because there's many verses in the Bible that do say, give thought to your actions, um, give thought to your actions, care for these people. Even in Philippians, or sorry, it's actually in, um, it's in 1 Timothy, I believe. Paul says he is anxious for the church. So there is a thoughtfulness and a care that God does call us to do. But what is being prohibited here in these passages is excessive anxiety. It is the anxiety that arises from sin. It is the anxiety that arises from a distrust in our Heavenly Father. It is the anxiety that arises when we cross over the line and fall into sin and are just controlled and crippled by anxiety. That is what Jesus is calling us away from and helping us to fight against. So with that in mind, let's return to that image of the crowd and let's return to the fact that Jesus is speaking directly to all of us in this passage. So reasons to fight anxiety. Reason number one, the more important things. We find that in verse 25. Reason number one, the more important things. Verse 25 reads, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Something that may stand out to you right here at the beginning of these verses, which stood out to me when I first read this, was what is mentioned. What is mentioned is not typical luxuries, He's not like, hey, don't be worried about the couch you're going to buy or the next car you're going to have or the promotion you're going to have at work. No, I mean, he's talking about like necessities here. He says, don't be worried about your life uh, and clothing and your, your body. So you see from the beginning, from verse 25, the full scope that Jesus is calling us to trust in him about. He is telling us that even daily physical needs, we can entrust to God and not become anxious about. Jesus is saying, even necessities like food, water, and clothing, 
These are not valid causes of worry among the children of God. It's the full scope of, hey, even these seemingly necessities, you can entrust those to our Father. So what is happening when you see in the second portion of verse 25, it says, is not life more than, is not, sorry, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? There's actually a type of logic or argumentation that's happening in this verse. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. The argument is used when drawing a conclusion that is even more obvious or convincing than the one just drawn. God has given the greater. Can you not trust him to also give the less? So let me, let me illustrate, okay? So recently I've had the pleasure and benefit of going to the gym more often. It's very healthy and good. I actually sometimes go with Nick Taylor. He leads worship every now and again. Nick is a pretty strong guy, much, much, much more strong than me. It's always so a benefit of going to the gym with someone stronger than you. It's, it's, it's great. So I want you to imagine with me it's leg day, and Nick is doing squats, and he puts on a lot of weight. He puts on, we'll say here, like 300 pounds. How strange, and imagine with me, if after Nick squatted 300 pounds, if I came up to Nick and said, yeah, but do you think you're strong enough to squat this water bottle? It would seem very, very strange, and he would be like, uh, I just squatted 300 pounds, the greater. Do you not think I have the power to squat the less than water bottle? That's what's happening in these verses. He is saying, I can provide life and your body. Do you not think I have the power to provide food and clothing and everything else? Another example of this is found in Romans 8.32. It's a verse that's probably familiar to most of us. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? God's own son, what is most important to him, the greater argument, if he gave him up, how will he not graciously give us all things? And so what we find here is that the stronger argument, the more important things he has given us a life and a body, he can take care of the lesser things like food and clothing and everything else. We cannot sustain our life and body. It's impossible for us to do, and God does it every day. He holds us together, and thus he has the power to give us the less. He has the power and the ability to easily take care of the less important things like daily necessities, whether it be jobs, children, health, surgeries, schooling, money. He has the ability and can take care of those things. So this is the first reason we find here, the first reason to not be excessively anxious because God has taken care of the more important things. We can entrust him with the smaller things. Reason number two is the ineffectiveness of anxiety. Reason number two is the ineffectiveness of anxiety. This comes from verses 27 and verse 34. I'll read verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And later on in verse 34, it says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This type of logic and reasoning is not actually super theological in nature. It's actually just more of like common wisdom, pragmatic, um, and common wisdom, pragmatic, and practical in saying that anxiety is ultimately ineffective. Anxiety is futile, unsuccessful, not productive. Verse 27 reads, do you have the ability to add a single moment to your life? Where this is drawing from is the fact that all of our days are numbered. Psalms, Psalms 139 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in the womb. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, I, when as yet there was none of them. Our anxieties and worries will not change what God has affixed in time. The second thing that he says here is don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. The phrase is highlighting the future orientedness of anxiety and essentially saying, don't worry. Every day, a helpful commentary says, every day brings its own cares and to anticipate them is only to double them. It's kind of like saying, we'll cross that bridge when it comes. So as an encouragement, when that day does come, God will give us the strength to um, get through. So these are pragmatic arguments. Your anxieties are ineffective. They're futile. And don't stress about the future. Each day has its own trouble. This is not, and I want to be careful here. I am not saying that we should just have a fatalistic, stoic, well, such is life. What's going to happen is going to happen. What happens happens. Nothing I can do. Instead, it is a humble realization that there are certain things we can't change. There are just certain things we can't change. And instead, we should trust the Lord. That's why in Philippians, when Paul speaks about anxiety, he says, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Next, we're going to see that God reasons with us to check his track record with all, of other, with all the rest of creation. So reason number three, consider nature. Reason number three, consider nature. So verse 26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Verse 28 reads, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What this verse is calling us to do is to consider how God cares. Look to how God cares for nature. God has created other things other than us, and we should look at how he cares for them to bolster our faith that he cares for us. First, what is very interesting here is how does God care for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field? 
Well, in one sense, when you think about how a bird gets fed, you know, the bird goes out of the nest and goes and gets the worm out of the ground and eats it, or picks it up. And I'm pretty sure it like regurgitates the worm and, and then goes and feeds it to its little baby worms. Or when you think about how lilies grow, there's some sunlight and some water and photosynthesis happens and the lilies grow. And there's a very real sense in which that is true. But also what this is calling us to is to have a really robust view of the universe. And this is what we're kind of forced to say if we're going to believe these verses. The birds eat because, yes, it's in their chemistry and the way they were designed to eat. But simultaneously, the birds eat because God feeds them. The, the trees and the lilies grow because of natural causes and grass in the fields. But simultaneously, the trees grow because God makes them grow. Earlier in Matthew 5, it says, God sends the rain. So we see here God's involvement in the entire governance of the universe. He is sustaining, conducting, in complete control of, and maintaining every atom in the universe. God is in meticulous control of all things, and here in this passage, it's highlighting his care for his creation. And so whatever it is that's causing you anxiety, know God has control over that situation. He, he is the one feeding the, um, feeding the birds and growing them. He has complete control over all things. Something else we see here is the difference between nature and us. And when I say us, I mean people. So it says here, the lilies of the, the, lilies of the field, which are here today and gone tomorrow, alive today and gone tomorrow. Recently, it was Allie and I's five-year anniversary, and I bought her some flowers. Literally, within 24 hours, the bouquet of flowers that I bought her were beautiful, and they had died. I was pretty sure they're supposed to last longer than 24 hours, but it wasn't the best, uh, wasn't the best place I got the flowers from, uh, which was my mistake. Um, but literally, beautiful flowers, 24 hours later, gone. And what he's doing is he's highlighting they're here today and gone tomorrow. You're here for a long time. You're here for 70 or 80 years. The reasoning is, if he's able to care for something that is so beautiful and only here for 24 hours, do you not think he has the power to care for you? Something else um, highlighting another difference between us and nature is that we are more valuable. God, we are categorically different than nature. We are the pinnacle of creation. We are created in the image of God. Just, um, just a few chapters later, in, um, in Matthew, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He's highlighting, you are the pinnacle of creation. You're created in the image of God. If he cares for the sparrows and the lilies, how much more does he care for you? I want you to think about someone who's really, really good at their trade. Maybe like a mechanic or a carpenter, physical therapist, electrician. 
And the, this person is really, really good at their craft. And even in the smallest of jobs, they take great care to do a really, really good job. And think of this person, and this person is brought a really important client or a really, really important job. Will that person who's good at their trade be not as good for the really important one? No, absolutely not. Instead, they will be even more careful and even more caring and meticulous. In the same way, God is saying here, if I take such meticulous care of nature, will I not do so with you? God actively provides for raccoons, for geese, for houseflies, which are here today and gone so quickly. Will he not also care for us? I hope at this point, as we're working through these verses in Matthew, you're able to see that this passage is rich. It is a minefield of reasons that we can trust ourselves to God, that we don't need to be anxious. There are, I think in this sermon, I'm doing four different reasons, but there can be so many that you can just mine out of here and seeing, oh, look at the ways that I don't need to be anxious because of X, Y, and Z. Fourth, fourthly, reason number four, God knows what you need. Reason number four, God knows what you need. Verse 32 reads, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. God knows what the flowers need. He knows what the animal needs. He knows what you and I need. And what this reason is, is it's calling us not to look at nature, but it's calling us to look at our all-knowing good father. And it's calling us to lift our eyes to him and say, oh, he knows all that we need. Recently, um, in the past eight months, I became a father. We have a little baby, Nora. So she's eight months old and she was sick about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago or so. And she had a fever. And, um, you know, as you should do when you have a baby with a fever, you should give them a little bit of baby Motrin or baby Tylenol. Um, But my goodness, she hated us giving her this baby Motrin. And so it was literally like all four hands on deck with like the uh, syringe trying to feed the baby the, uh, the medicine. And she was just having a fit. And if it was up to her, she would not have had it at all. But thank goodness, we know what the child needs. And 15 minutes later, she's happy as a clam. I'm a finite creature. And if I know what my daughter needs, how much more does our Father in heaven know exactly what all of us need? I did not dig out the oceans. I have not hold together the universe. I do not know how many hairs that I have on my head. I don't hold together all things or have been alive since the beginning of time, but God does. And he is our good, gracious Father, and he knows everything we need. God knows what we need and will provide it in the moment. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, I know how to be brought low. I know how to provide, uh, sorry, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
And the reason for that is, is because he knows each of his needs will provide strength to get him through. That's why in the following verse, um, he knows that in each of his needs, God will provide strength to get him through. That's why in the following verse, he says, I can go to him. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I think it's helpful too for us to realize what is a need. God knows what we need. God is the one who defines the needs, not us. Sometimes what we think is a need, he defines as a want. And so I think it's important that the need is based on his perception of being God over the whole universe rather than ours. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has um, an affliction. He has a thorn in his flesh. I'm pretty sure he probably felt he needed it removed. But instead, the Lord, who is over all things, said, no, you don't need that removed. My grace is sufficient. So in the same way, that's how, what our response needs to be when we don't get exactly what we want. It's also important for me to say at this point, all of these truths, all of these reasons that we're doing when we're working through here in Matthew 6, these are for people who have trusted in Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, I pray and I hope and have turned from your sin, I pray and I hope that you ingrain these things on our hearts so that we don't have to be anxious. However, for those who deny Christ, there is something to be anxious about. There is something to be unsettled about. I can't say to you, friend, don't have anxiety, believe these things. A few chapters later in Matthew, Jesus is affirming his disciples not to worry. And he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is, at, who is in heaven. To those who deny Christ, there is cause for anxiety. There is cause for an unsettlement because you deny Christ now and one day you will be denied. But the good news is this, amen. Today, do not harden your heart and turn against him, but instead trust and have faith that he can save you. So we see here in verse 32, the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. We saw there at the beginning of that verse, the Gentiles seek after all these things. That can be like translated to just be like the pagans, the ones who don't trust in Christ seek after all these things because that's all there is in this life. But what Jesus is calling us to is not a seeking after of these things, but in verse 33, we see instead seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is slightly different. The other, um, all the other reasons are reasons to flee from anxiety and it's giving us reason after reason like, hey, you don't need to be anxious and here's why. But here in verse 33, he's saying, Here's a different path I want you to go on. There's something categorically different here. Instead of concerning yourself with this, I instead want you to do this. When you look at the word seek, what we see is a persistent, active pursuit. It's a prioritizing this pursuit. What do I love most? What do I think about most? A retraining of our thoughts so that it's, 
the most important things in our life are God's kingdom and God's righteousness. When we see his kingdom, it means it shows his church, his people, his doing his will, furthering his agenda in every aspect of our life. When we see his righteousness, we are prioritizing personal holiness, sanctification, a close relationship with God, daily submitting to his commands. And what is, what's being asked here is that we make that our central pursuit. That is the big rock in our life that we place first, that we say, hey, I'm going to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what I'm going to focus on. God is telling us to concern ourselves with that. But I will say, that's not, it's not easy to do that. He, he, he's saying, he's calling us away from anxiety and saying, instead, you just focus on my righteousness and my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. It's not easy for us to do that. And I, I understand that, but we must trust God here. This is where we must lean hard and trust in God. There was a pastor, I think this is a, uh, a helpful story. There was a pastor back in 1834. His name was George Mueller. This was someone that really, really trusted the Lord in all of their daily actions. Um, he had something like 10,000 orphans go through his establishment of orphans and, or his orphan care um, that he did. And he did everything just on prayer. He did not ask for money, but he simply prayed to the Lord and the Lord always provided for him. And there's an interesting interaction with him and a man that I think is helpful for us. On one occasion, George Mueller visited a man who was in the habit of working at his trade for nearly 16 hours every day. His health was suffering and his Christian faith meant very little to him. If you worked less, George Mueller suggested, your health would improve and you would have more time to read your Bible and pray. You would then know more joy spiritually. But if I worked less, the man replied, I don't earn enough to support my family. Even now, while I work such long hours, I scarcely have enough. The wages are so low that I have to work hard to obtain what we need. Now, honestly, at this point, I just would have been like, I'm really, really sorry. That is a tough situation you're in. Let me pray for you. That's, that's tough. But George Mueller is someone who has a deep faith in God and probably is a better Christian than I am. And this is how George responds. And so Mueller replies, this is not trust in God. This is not belief in the words of Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He continues on. My dear brother, it is not your work which supports your family, but the Lord. And he who has fed you and your family when you couldn't work at all on account of illness would surely provide for you and your family. And if for the sake of obtaining spiritual food for your inner soul, you were to work less to, to, oh, sorry. If you were to work less for recreation and study of God's word, if only that you would take God at his word and would rely upon it. How true is that for all of us? That we would take God at his word and rely deeply upon it. So in closing, what I want us to see this morning is that this passage 
most likely is familiar to most of us in this room. Most of us in this room, probably not the first time hearing this passage. But the question and what is tough for us is how do we move this passage from just being up in our head to deeply in our hearts so that we truly trust and rely upon it? And I just have two suggestions that I hope will be helpful to you. First is this, have faith, have a simple trust in the words of God. Let's not be like the person that George Mueller was speaking to. This is not trust in God. This is not belief in the words of Christ. Instead, let's be a people who actually trust and believe the words of God as true and lean into them. Believe these words as true. And secondly, I think is very helpful, it's from moving it from head to heart, is preach this passage to yourself. Tell your heart this passage. Like, even if you have to mumble and be weird and, you know, a spouse or someone walks in and is like, what are you doing over there? <laughs> like, tell your soul these words. Tell your soul, sing these things to yourself, that this is how God cares for me. I've, um, I've, Curtis asked me to preach probably like two weeks ago or so. So I've had about two and a half weeks to maul over this passage. And in that time, there have been a lot of stressful anxious filled situations. I had a job interview, but I just told myself over and over again, he cares for the birds. He cares for the lilies. How much more does he care for me? So I hope and I pray that we can have a simple faith in God's word found here and that we can learn in some way to teach it to ourselves, to sing it to ourselves, to preach it to ourselves, whatever it is, to memorize it, to ingrain it upon our souls. And with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are very, very, very thankful that you've given us this section of your word. Thank you for the extended passage in the Lord's Prayer or in the Sermon on the Mount on anxiety. Father, you did not just tell us the command, but you gave us reasons. And I pray, Father, that we would ingrain them and remember them and believe them. Father, we come before you and we ask a few things. Father, would you please increase our faith? Father, would you help us to have a strong trust in your word? Father, we also ask that we would, in doing so, be set apart differently from the rest of the world. Father, we also pray that we would care for people in our congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would bear the burdens with them, remind them of words like this, and to be loving and caring towards one another. Father, thank you. Thank you. Um, ultimately for your son. Thank you for this passage. We are grateful for all that you've done, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.